In our school, we used to call him the love vulture. Though he responded to Elvie, I'm not sure if he ever knew what it meant. When we first met him, we noticed that any time he saw a girl in distress, whether on the verge of tears or howling in full-throttled anguish, he would levitate towards them, circling in an ever-tightening spiral until he reached his target, and then, in muted, puppy-like tones, he would seem to smother the source of the emphatic emotion and bring it back into a state of equilibrium. We were jealous though, jealous of the physical contact that he made with pretty much every girl in the school, whilst we barely had the guts to even talk to them. But whether he was hugging them to quell their tremors, or simply brushing the sodden hair away from their tear-stained faces, the effect would always be the same. A steadying of the pulse, a deep drawing of breath. From his appearance, you wouldn't have guessed he could have this kind of effect on people. A hulking, bovine body that seemed somehow to be old and new at the same time. Like a kind of temporal crossbreed between an aged sacred cow and a newborn calf, whose flesh had not yet settled on its bones. And to top this off, as my mother used to say, he had a face like a torn scone with red, jammy lips perpetually blighted by cold sores. He once told me the story of this infection, about how, at a very early age, maybe at two or three years old, he had visited his grandmother on what, as far as I can remember, was an annual occasion. He had seen the outbreak around her lips, the pustules glistening in the clear morning light, and he had felt that if those red emissions touched him, then he would become like them, dispersed into some kind of bubbling mass that could barely lay claim to a unity, let alone a self. But at the same time, he had felt so keenly the hurt that she would feel if he turned his face away when she came to kiss him. He had felt it with such insistence that it was impossible to do anything else but accept her kiss with it, the inevitable. But this gift of his was anathema to our school, and it flew in the face of many of the principles it espoused. One such principle was that of the Emotional Reflux Reward Programme. Every time we expressed an emotion that was deemed to be, let's say, progressive for our age, we were rewarded with coupons that could be used in the school canteen. I'm not sure where this policy came from, but it seemed as if it was an experiment that had been instigated long ago and never revised in light of its findings, and possibly, like many legacy precepts, misunderstood by subsequent rule, it was left as it was, as if out of the certainty that somewhere in the musty codices there was an erudite exposition that, once deciphered, would lay plain, in simple and compelling language, the purpose and desired outcome of the peculiar practice. But most likely no one had had the gall to have the tones disinterned, let alone to set about the heady task of reading them. 
though it may have been a little misguided in its execution, often leading to a cycle of abuse, I see now that they were trying to develop us into completer human beings that would otherwise have been expected. Ones who could express a whole range of emotions beyond those few foul excretions we usually label as our emotional palate. But at the time, it felt strangely ominous, as if we had stepped unwittingly into the flimsily folded world of the Watchtower, or some such aberration. Woven into our curriculum were laughter workshops, crying workshops, anger workshops, Christ, we even had Kegel workshops, strengthening the pelvic floor to increase orgasm intensity. Though they didn't phrase it like this in its key stages, in our final year, this was advertised as an additional benefit to the exercises we had been doing for the past five years or so. As we became more attuned to the lucrative nature of our emotions, we realised that it was in our interests to cry, and, catching up with the girls, who turned this page long ago, we soon found that Elby's apparent predatory predilections were more complex than we had imagined. Perhaps we were also catching up with the idea that not everything towed the line of that monotonous throng of desire. Not every drive was a one-way street. But all that's to say, far from being the pest that his feebly drawn impression may have suggested, he was in fact closer in aspect to a rosary that had been hastily strung together using knuckle bones and twine, and then polished to an ivory sheen through persistent handling. For we were the ones using him. On any given day, after the rallying cry of hearts on sleeves echoed from teacher to students and back again as we pressed our thumbs over our hearts and splayed our fingers across our biceps in a quarter salute, courage and vulnerability in one awkward stretch, we would file out of class with a kind of half gallop to reach the break room in time for the opening of the coupon exchange, the one place where Elvie reigned supreme. The market was held twice a day during the first five minutes of morning and afternoon break. Here, people sold off their coupons for ready cash. We even had a sub-sale of futures, where you could buy the tears of tomorrow at a cut-down price, often so low that it was quite likely to induce the tears it speculated on. As chief cooler, or the cinch in our school parlance, he assessed the quantity of coupons available at each given time, adjusting the value accordingly, and then, his white-gloved hands held in high suspense, slowly descending like two doves sent from heaven, the crowd enraptured as he brought silence to court. He would declare the market open with a solemn bow. As far as I know, there was only one time that he ever received a coupon himself. We were on a site visit to the local abattoir as part of our immersive economics class led us through the whole process from the arrival of the animals to the departure of the meat. When the first delivery backed into the loading bay and the ramp lowered, releasing a torrent of beating lambs, I saw Elvie transform. The calm, almost floating quality of his eyes became frozen. He didn't know where to look, where to go or what to do. He seemed like a bird with clipped wings. There was so much suffering. So much fear, too much for them, and too many thems for him. So he turned away, and for once, 
tears appeared in his startled eyes. As for us, and I mean all of us, the butcher, the caretaker, the director, the driver, our teacher, we all burst into tears. A wild wailing that drowned out the sound of the lambs to the point they stopped when turned to look at us with curious gazes and the odd inquisitive bleat. We left the abattoir drained. Needless to say, we all ate well that day. In the following months, we saw Elvie less and less until, around the time of the final exams, we stopped coming to school altogether. His absence was particularly noticeable due to the stress that a lot of us were under and the consequent breakdowns that became daily occurrence. Without him, we had no way of coping. We were like an orchestra of no conductor, shifting imperceptibly out of time. It should have been obvious, but it took me a while to realise where he was spending his time. He had returned to the abattoir the following day, asking if he could be with the animals before they died. The manager, quite naturally, declined this obscure but potentially obscene request and continued taking off the inventory. When the butcher, who had witnessed the events of the day before, came up to them, and with a trembling hand, pointing at Elvie, rasped, It's you! It's you! Thank you! Stretching out his arms, tattooed as densely as chainmail, and with tears in his eyes, he embraced him with an intensity only matched by that of the stench of blood. In consequence, Elvie was allowed to stay. He had a sense of what to do, but he couldn't express it at first. He could only act. By spending time with the animals, they seemed to become calmer, more docile, and this appeared to be of some benefit to the process. Many customers claimed that the meat suddenly tasted better, and though they couldn't quite put their fingers on what the difference was, Several words reoccurred and glowing letters of appreciation began to arrive soon after. Tender, mellow, gentle, one even labelling the flavour as faithful. Eventually, out of a keen respect for revenue, he was given his own room, a grave windowless concrete box with muted acoustics and dim ochreish wall lighting tended to flicker as the power tools sucked and surged. Through one door the animals would be admitted, and Elvie, standing at the opposite door with his hands gently placed together like two feathers held in a stable updraft, would speak in his lowering tone and invite the animal to sit with him for a while. Often suspicious, but always succumbing, they left the room in a tranquil state prepared for death, perhaps even numb to it. The abattoir under the auspices of this unassuming emperor of the dead had become silent, save for the groans and chatter of metal melding with flesh. To him now, life was in the dispersal of suffering, for every ounce of compassion he gave, an ounce of meat he made.